We have been going through the book of Acts, and this week we had Acts chapter 23 and 24 uh, that we were, we, we've been reading. I hope that you enjoyed it uh, as you were reading this week. And I want to just share some of my thoughts with you this morning that I had while thinking on these and, and, and reading this week. You know, when I, when I read the scripture, I'm often always looking for some theological nuggets, you know, I'm looking for some kind of new information or some kind of breakthrough new thing that, that God will show me in the Bible. And when I, to be honest with you, when I was planning this series on the book of Acts and I was getting into these later chapters where Paul is on trial and he's, he's going through these things, I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to talk about when the time comes out of these chapters. I'm not sure what nuggets God's going to pull out. And, and uh, so we'll see what, what God did this week for me and see if he does something for you as we go through these passages together. Acts chapter 23 verse 1 is where we're going to begin. Now we need to pick up the story and if you weren't here with us last week or in recent weeks, kind of what's going on here is Paul has returned to Jerusalem. So this is, keep in mind this is about in the neighborhood of 25 years after Jesus died on the cross. There's been quite a bit of time that has gone by. You know when you read through the gospels and then you jump into the book of Acts and then you read it in a in just a matter of hours, really, you kind of go, how much time went by? It's actually about 25 years has gone by. Paul's been on, been a, he's, he's been all the way to Athens preaching the gospel by now. So a lot, some time has gone by, and it's important for us to realize that. This, they called it the way. That's just, they weren't called Christians really yet. They didn't call it Christianity yet. It was starting to take on that kind of identity. But w- according to the scripture, it was, co- it was just called the way. Because remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, and so it was called the way. And Paul went back to Jerusalem, and there were some Jews from Asia that were in Jerusalem worshiping, and they recognize Paul, and they stir up the crowd, and Paul's in trouble. They want, they want to kill him. They want him dead. They don't like him. He's given a defense already to the crowd. We looked at that last week, and now we're going to look further into this story. And I want to begin in verse 1. And looking intently at the council, okay, so what's going on here? Uh, he was, Paul was taken by the Romans so that, they don't, so that the Jews didn't kill him. And we find out he's a Roman citizen. And then, then Paul goes and stands before what's called the Sanhedrin. It's like the Jewish Senate, if you will. It's like the ruling council of the Jews. And, and, and Rome gave the Jews a lot of liberty in the way they governed themselves. They did a lot of self-governance. And Rome intervened when they had to in moments like this where maybe they would kill somebody unjustly or something like that. But that, this is who Paul's standing before. He's standing before his fellow Jews and he's about to give his defense. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. So this is, this is how he starts his defense. I've lived my life in good conscience. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Did you read this and wonder, why did Ananias hear Paul say this and then go, slap that man? I'm not sure if that's how he said it, but. Hit that guy in the mouth. He ordered him to be struck. Now here, Ananias is the high priest. He's kind of the leader of this whole council. And what he hears Paul say is, I'm living rightly. I've done the right thing. But they all know that Paul is following this way. And he's stirring things up. And they don't agree with him. And he immediately feels like Paul's lying. He has not lived good. He's lived according to this other 
crazy idea. And this Jesus figure whom we crucified under his predecessor. And so he orders him to be struck on the mouth. That's why. Because if you put yourself in Ananias' shoes, here's this rebellious guy stirring up stuff, and now he claims that he's lived his whole life in good conscience before God. Baloney. Smack him. And he hits him in the face. Whoever was standing by him. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Anyone ever said that to you? Seems like a strange insult in English, doesn't it? Don't try that, by the way, please. JR, I tried that to insult somebody this week. It didn't work. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now this is a really interesting passage, and there, there is a lot of debate about why. When we just try and unpack what's going on here, um, why, why did Paul respond this way? Why did Ananias do this? Um, I want to talk to you a little bit, tell you a little bit about uh, who Ananias the high priest is. Ananias is a Sadducee, most likely. We'll talk about Pharisees and Sadducees again in a moment. Actually, Ananias has just returned from Rome. He was on trial himself. He was known for his cruelty. He was also known for bribery, things like that, much like Governor Felix we're going to learn about here in a little bit. So Ananias was not necessarily known, even historically he's not known as that good of a guy. He's very politically motivated. He was uh, influencing some conflicts between uh, Judah and Samaria in order to make some money, and that's why he went to Rome to be put on trial. He actually, um, you know, in a way, Paul was prophesying that, how, that Ananias would be struck by God at one point. We'll talk about that in a moment. But why did, why did Paul respond this way? Why did Paul respond like this? God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And then they say, you don't talk to the high priest like that. I'm paraphrasing. And he said, and he said, I'm sorry, I didn't know he was high priest. Now, scholars kind of argue about this, like, did Paul really not know this guy was the high priest? You're talking about a very visible and recognizable figure in Jerusalem, but Paul hasn't been in Jerusalem, probably since uh, Ananias took over. He knows his name, I'm sure. So some people say he didn't really recognize Ananias or didn't know that Ananias was the one who gave the command. Normally in a regular meeting of the Sanhedrin, there would be no question who the high priest was based on his dress and his position in the council. But Paul lashes out at him. Is Paul actually apologizing here? Or is he being sarcastic? This is actually something that's debated. First of all, we need to remember something about Paul. Paul's just a man. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. Paul made mistakes. Sometimes we want to paint Paul in this kind of quasi-perfect way, like because he was Paul, he never made mistakes. But it looks, most people agree that Paul actually lost his cool here. And Paul could lose his cool. We knew that about him, right? Is it, it's not okay to lose your cool, but we're human, right? Sometimes we lash out and say something maybe when we shouldn't. Now, is, is Ananias right in commanding this? No. Paul knows that. 
But people debate, is, is, is this a sarcastic apology? An ironic apology? What do I mean by that? Is he saying, uh, I didn't recognize he was the high priest because a high priest would never do that. Is he being ironic and sarcastic? You know, but he is backing it up. He's saying, okay, the Bible says don't speak evil of the ruler of your people. Even though, Ananias, what you just did was wrong by ordering me to be struck, uh, I'm gonna go ahead and apologize and honor your position of authority. Remember, Paul wants to reach the Jews. Paul wants his gospel to be heard. I mean, if, if you think about this, uh, Paul has already been beaten and stoned and all kinds of things trying to preach the gospel to people. I mean, just before this, he's got this angry mob at the temple and they give him the opportunity to speak and what does he do? Gives his testimony. He wants to reach people. He's not trying to defend himself for a legal purpose, although there's, there's a threat of that in here. He's wanting people to hear his story. He's wanting to, people to hear that Jesus is the Messiah. The Jews were looking for a Messiah, and Paul wants to reach them with this good news. So every opportunity he gets, he's delivering that message, even in front of the people that hate him. He's really wanting to bring this message. And so here he has this opportunity. I think it's important to remember that when you kind of go, why did Paul apologize? Let me, why don't you put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment? I don't know, he's probably, probably handcuffed or something, I would guess. He's arrested, if you will. And he's standing there, and he says, brothers, I've lived my life in a good conscience before God, and somebody hits you in the face. How would you react? I joked about this a few weeks ago, but, you know, let's just say we lived in a different time or place, and as soon as the service is over, the police drag me outside and start beating me. How would you feel about that? Or they grabbed you and drug you outside and started beating you. Would you respond with the noble character that Paul often did? Even though he lashes out in his moment against the high priest, and I'm not sure he's even wrong in doing so, but he still humbles himself. He's being falsely accused. His life's on the line. And he still humbles himself in this moment. That blows my mind. Sometimes when we read the Bible, I told you that I'm always looking for like some theological breakthrough nugget. But sometimes it's just the story we need to hear that inspires us and reminds us and motivates us about who we are as believers. So Paul makes his apology. Some people say that Paul had such bad eyesight he couldn't tell that it was the high priest. You ever heard that argument before? Have you ever even thought about it before? <laughs> well, Paul, when he's writing in his letter to the Galatians, he says, see with what big letters I write you in my own hand. So a lot of times these guys, when they're writing letters in the Bible, they're, they're talking while someone else is writing. You know, so that becomes a problem when they're trying to determine authentic authorship and things like that. That becomes a challenge. But the, book of, the letter to the Galatians, Paul wrote himself by hand and he jokes about it saying look at how big of letters I write in my own hand well people are like well he was probably far-sighted then he's like some of you and needs reading glasses I'm not teasing you because <laughs> I'm concerned I might be there very quickly myself but you know how it is with reading glasses you got to get that those glasses on to magnify and it needs to be big so you can see it People say, Paul must have had some poor eyesight but here's the thing if Ananias is sitting over there and I'm sitting here and I'm Far-sighted, I can see him fine. Or maybe he needed bifocals, I don't know. Maybe we're getting into a subject we don't need to worry about today. 
But it is one of the things that comes up in conversation about Paul. I want to continue on with what happens here. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Okay, what's going on here? Wow, we have a lot we can unpack about this situation. A few things I want to visit about today. First of all, in the past when I've talked about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I, I've really generalized and, and not probably gone enough into depth about it. But you've got these two groups, like political parties. They're like religious parties. They're almost like two denominations that disagree if you could think about it in modern terms. But the issue is there are way more Pharisees than there are Sadducees. And there's major differences in their theology. There's major differences in the way they live. And I want to unpack some of that for us today because I think it can give us some instruction on our own lives about how we live. One of the things about, and the reason Paul's bringing up the resurrection of the dead and as a Pharisee is that the Pharisees believed in, in a heaven and a hell, they believed in angels and demons, they believed in the resurrection of the dead to face judgment. They believed that was coming. So in, in those ways, we would be very much like them in our beliefs. Now there are other things I'll get into in a minute that were different. The Sadducees did not believe any of that. They believed when you're dead, you're dead, that's it. So they're very sad, you see. <laughs> Come on, you've heard that before. You've heard that before. They're very sad, you see, and that's how you remember. I mean, I'd be sad too if this is it. But it also explains some of the things about the way they lived. Now, what you maybe, and so in that way, I've, I've often talked about, I, I've compared it to modern uh, Democrats and Republicans or conservatives and liberals. That's not really accurate. It doesn't really carry over very well. Because actually the Sadducees were very, very conservative in one way. They only believed in the Torah. Do you know what the Torah is? They only believed in the five books of Moses. They only believed in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was their Bible. They didn't believe in the prophets. I mean, it's not that they didn't believe them, but they didn't consider it scripture necessarily. And so they were very strict with the laws of Moses, which is very ironic considering how they lived. But just theologically, that's what they did. The Pharisees were kind of on the opposite end. In some ways, they were more religiously liberal because what they did is they, they believed in the Torah, they believed in the prophets, much like we do, but they also took the oral traditions as scripture. And they began to add all of these additional regulations in order to be perfect before God. And so they, and, and they took liberty to add to what God had instructed. Now Jesus gets after them for this big time, doesn't he? If you know some of the stories of Jesus rebuking the Pharisees, you know he was on their case about the way they handled people. I want to look at one of those this morning. We'll come back to the story. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. How would you like this rebuke from Jesus? Youch. But what, what is he getting at? He, he's on their case because they've created such an intense religious system that they themselves can't even fulfill it. 
And then they try and leverage it on everybody else. And there's a number of other woes that Jesus talks about. Hey, woe to you, fr- you, you, you fries and hypocrites, you Pharisees, you scribes, you hypocrites. You, you'll cross over land and sea to make a convert, and then you'll make him twice the son of hell as you are. Ooh. You, you'll tithe your, your herbs, your dill, your mint, your cumin. You'll pay your tithes, great, but you neglect the more important matters of the law, like faith and justice and mercy. So these guys had created such an intense religious system that they were kind of miss, starting to miss the point. And it was too heavy and too burdensome. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they just like took one part of it and ran with it. And they also were in the wrong. I started to think about how does this apply to me today? I, I would argue this, that, that in a way the Sadducees allowed politics to destroy their religion. And in a way the Pharisees allowed religion to destroy their religion. And we can see the same kind of examples today in the world all the time. When we, when we get super religious, we start to miss the point of what Jesus actually did. And it becomes more about our customs and more about our systems and more about crossing our T's and dotting our I's and dressing the right way. How many of you are offended I didn't wear a tie today? Hopefully nobody. But we start to do that, right? It's more godly if you wear a tie when you preach. I wanted to wear my tennis shoes today and my wife's like, you can't preach in tennis shoes. Oh, okay, I kind of agree, I agree. But it's not, it's not because of a religious reason, because God's offended by tennis shoes. Right, we do that. We can become so ultra-religious, we do exactly what Jesus said when he said, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Gnat, camel. You miss the bigger point. But at the same time, the Sadducees, what happened with the Sadducees is they... I don't know what their thinking exactly was, but I don't know, if, if I thought that when my life was over, that's it, who cares? Then I would have a tendency to live a little more selfishly, and they did. They were in cahoots with Rome. They, they were by far the minority. They were, they were the wealthy class, and they were the ruling class. The Pharisees were much more uh, the religious people of the people. And they had all their extra stuff. And then the Sadducees were much more political, much more wealthy. And and, in fact, um, Ananias has such strong connections with the Roman government here. I mean, he's a very wealthy man, powerful and cruel even. And and this is how the Sadducees operated. So they, they had adopted lots of Greek thinking, lots of Roman thinking. They liked the Romans. And what happens later, maybe you don't realize... Some of you understand that by 70 AD or so, the, the Jewish temple gets destroyed. We're right around 60, 50, 57 to 60 uh, AD here. So we're just a few years away, actually about six years away from the first Jewish-Roman war. We're this close. So tensions are high in Jerusalem. They want, the people want their own identity. The ruling class likes Rome because it's made them wealthy and comfortable. Isn't that interesting? I think we kind of do that too. Don't if I'm wealthy and comfortable, I'm less likely to pursue change. So the Sadducees, they're, they're this wealthy ruling class. They've adopted all these Roman customs. They're working with the Roman government. Uh, Rome clearly has dominance over the Jews at this particular point. But remember, Paul says, 
God will strike you, you whitewashed tomb. Well, just a few years later, when the first Jewish-Roman war starts, Ananias has to flee, right? Because he's, he's a Roman sympathizer. They find him in an aqueduct and killed him. So they, these guys, they got theirs later, not very long from now. They didn't know that, but you have the benefit of knowing that now. So there's, you, you can understand now in this Sanhedrin situation where Paul is giving his testimony, cries out, you understand why it's suddenly... So why does he say this? It's because of the resurrection of the dead. Paul's thinking, I've got, I've got Jesus resurrected from the dead. I'm going to preach him, but I understand this is going to cause some issues. So he cries out, it's because of the resurrection of the dead I'm on trial. Well, immediately the Pharisees go, hey, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. And the Sadducees go, no, we don't. It's like a session of Congress or something here. <clears throat> well, Paul knows this. He's pretty clever. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. Ah, he's one of us. I mean, they're totally wrong, but... If you put yourself in the, in the position of the Pharisees in this situation, some scholars speculate that the Pharisees begin to suspect that the Sadducees actually planted Paul in there to spark a debate so they could make their point. Basically saying, you Pharisees are just like Paul. You're, you're with this way thing. You're way off. No pun intended. And so there's, there's a political maneuvering going on here. There's suspicion of one another. Who is this guy? Why is he on trial? Hey, he believes in the resurrection of the dead. He can't be too bad. And so, and they say, what, we find nothing wrong. What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? Because remember, he's just shared his testimony about Jesus appearing to him on the road to Damascus. He just shared it outside to the mob. And so they're thinking, well, that could happen. And the Sadducees are like, that doesn't happen. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, he's kind of the the Roman army ruler representative guy, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Again, the Romans have to intervene to save Paul's life. Now, I want to talk about Paul's heart here just for a second and just remind you Actually, let's talk about this verse for a second. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Now, how, this verse came to my mind, and I, it comes up quite a bit lately for us, but um, I, when I look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I look at the situation and I see the Sadducees, for the sake of their power and their comfort and their control, destroyed the work of God. And the Pharisees, for the sake of their traditions and their idealism and their um, unhealthy religiousness destroy the work of God. Do you see what I'm saying? These are people who believed in God but were lured off track by these two powerful things, legalism and politics. Do not for the sake of, fill in the blank, destroy the work of God. 
I think this is a very important lesson we can learn from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In the way they allowed themselves culturally and, and politically to be lured away from the core tenets of their faith in order to do things that they felt were more important. They began to put higher priority on things other than their faith or biblical doctrine and teaching and therefore began to do damage to the work of God. It's why the kingdom of God didn't come through them. But Jesus came and became a kingdom of faith. I hope you understand what I'm saying here. Because we can end up in both at the same time. We can Extreme things can lure us to begin to do damage to our most important mission. It's why Paul's, Paul's talking in here, like, if your brother can't eat meat because he believes it's wrong, don't eat meat with him. Don't make him stumble. You might be right, but you'll still be wrong. Be careful about what you do and how you live because you have a bigger priority than that. The priority of the mission of Jesus Christ is the priority. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God, which we see an example in both the Pharisees and the Sadducees of how they went off track over the years. Remember, God hasn't really spoken to the Jews for about 500 years. They were exiled in Babylon and you know, a couple of the tribes were able to come back and then they rebuilt the temple and all these things are going on years and years and years. So they have lots of time to develop their own little religions, if you will. We need to be careful about that. The other thing I want to remind you is what Paul said in Romans chapter 9. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Did Paul love the Jews? Paul is willing to lose his salvation for them to be saved. That's how much he loves his kinsmen, his brothers, the Jews. So when he's standing here on trial, we don't, I, I don't think Paul's heart is to be manipulative. I mean, I, I think he's being a little clever to stir things up. But I think he's looking for every opportunity he has to share the gospel. If he can talk about the resurrection of the dead that day, he can talk about Jesus, I think is what he's thinking. Paul's motivation was to reach the Jews. Elsewhere in the Bible, he says, to the Jews I become a Jew. To the Greeks I become a Greek. I become whatever I need to that I might win some. Paul's primary concern was this good news of the gospel and bringing it into other people's lives. He laid everything else down. And that's an example for you and I. Brothers, it's my heart's desire and prayer to God for them that they may be saved. Remember, everywhere Paul went, he goes to the synagogues first. These are the people that should get it. These are the people that know the scripture. These are the people that are most likely to receive it and yet don't. Many did, actually. But he loves his people and he wants to reach them. But he's, he's got a lot of flexibility as well. So when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by oath, neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Now, particularly in the, this day and time, you got a group of guys who get together and, and take a vow. This is serious business. When, for a Jew to take a vow in these times, you, <laughs> you, can, get, you can almost guarantee Paul's not going to make it through the day. They will kill him. These people will lay down their lives for what they believe. They, in just a few years, they go to war against the Roman Empire. 
and give them a run for their money. They're very zealous for what they believe. They want to kill Paul. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Was this news to anybody? Paul has a sister in Jerusalem and a nephew. We don't know much about Paul, but it just all of a sudden puts us in contact with the reality of who he is. He's a real guy, and he's got a family. People have even wondered if Paul was married at one point, perhaps widowed. That's not provable, but there is some debate around that. Anyway, I just thought that was fun. So they're going to kill Paul. They vowed to kill him. Claudius Lysias. Claudius Lysias. He's the the Roman uh, leader guy of the army there. To his excellency, the governor Felix. So what's happening here is, is Lysias is taking Paul and sending him to Felix down in Caesarea. He said, all right, this is out of hand. He needs to go talk to the governor to stand trial. I I just find this letter funny. I I think you probably caught it as well if you read this week. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Is this really what happened? This isn't quite really what happened. You can see that that he's, he's skewing the facts to make himself look like the hero, isn't he? Come on, guys, you would do that, wouldn't you? Honey, I scrub that tub with a vengeance. Make yourself look good. I deserve credit. Well, he, he's, he's kind of doing this because really what happened is he thinks he's some sort of Egyptian rebel and he's ready to whip him. He's probably ready to kill him himself and then finds out he's a Roman citizen. Not this quite noble story like, there's a Roman citizen, let's go to the rescue. Didn't quite work that way, but I just thought that was funny. I hope you found it funny as well. So he sends him to uh, Felix, and then we move into uh, chapter 24. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They, uh, some, some translations translate spokesman uh, lawyer. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since Though, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept, we accept this with all gratitude. He's schmoozing him, right? Sounds like an attorney today, right? In front of a judge. Oh, most excellent, your honor. Okay. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So what happens after this is Paul gets up there and and he says, all right, this is all baloney. They can't prove it, and they can't. He, he was by himself at the temple. He wasn't stirring a crowd. He was ceremonially clean. We see that detail previously. So they're, they're really trying to stir up, to some extent, false charges against Paul. And then Paul says, but I do confess I am a follower of the way. And he talks about that. And then it goes in to give us a little insight to Felix. Let's talk about Felix for just a moment before we wrap things up. Felix's brother was... 
uh, secretary of the treasury in the Roman Empire for Claudius at this time. He was a, they were Greeks, both of them, the, their brothers, and, and historically it says that his brother was a freedman, meaning he had been a slave who was set free. Now he's one of the most powerful people in the Roman Empire, his brother. And Felix is obviously very powerful too, being the governor of Judah. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, remember Lysias, he wrote the letter, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but to have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his knees. His needs. His knees probably were sore too from all that walking. So, come on, are you with me? Don't quit your day job, JR. I'm a comedian. So, so Felix is aware of the way. Remember, 25 years has gone by, 25 to 30 years since Jesus has been crucified. Felix knows about the way. He's heard the stories. They're, they're not unknown. They've turned the world upside down according to the Jews. So after some days, Felix comes with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Okay, this is really important. Remember back early in the, in when we were talking in the book of Acts when the apostle James is martyred? He's the first apostle to be killed. Remember that? And I started talking to you about the Herods. Did I put a goofy chart up there that no one can understand? Remember that? And talking about Herod the Great and Herod Philip and Herod the Tetrarch and Herod Agrippa I and Herod Agrippa II. And, and we talked about that. Herod Agrippa II is the one who ordered James to be killed. And he comes up again later. Next week we'll be talking about him a little bit. Herod, Drusilla is Herod Agrippa II's daughter. Okay, she is part of the Herodian family. She's going to have a thorough knowledge of, of some of these things. She's, she's going to know the Jewish laws. Her family is very connected to the Sadducees. Those kinds of things. Now, I don't think I'm reading too far into the text to, to believe these things. So Felix is married to a Jewish woman. He's going to have a lot of points of connection with what Paul has to say. And so after some days, he gets his wife and they send for Paul and, and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. So Felix is listening to all this. You almost get the impression he wants to know. Because he's alarmed. He gets alarmed when we get to this judgment thing. And he says, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would bribe him. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. He's got some mixed motives, it looks like to me here. He wants to learn about the way, but Paul's a powerful guy in the way, right? And everybody knows Christians have lots of money, right? Don't quit your day job, JR. We told you that already. You're not funny. But he's thinking he's going to get a big bribe from Paul. And, and so for all this time, two years goes by that Paul is basically a prisoner with a lot of liberty here at Caesarea. Eventually, Felix is succeeded. In fact, Felix goes back to Rome. He's on trial himself. Felix is known historically for the bribery and all those kind of things. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. And we'll learn more about Festus um, next week.
What, what did we learn as we read this story? What, what can we glean? We see Paul's bravery and his courage in the middle of difficulty. We see, you know, I, I skipped over it, but it, it does say that that night when Paul, after the trial, Paul's, uh, Jesus stands by Paul and encourages him. Just like you've testified to the facts here, you're gonna testify in Rome. It's like a prophetic word that Paul gets. He knows he's going to Rome. God is with us. It's just a reminder, he's with you. Jesus may not appear next to you and talk to you in audible form like he sometimes did. I hope he does, because I want to hear about it. (laughs) But God is with you, just like God was with Paul. And Paul was on a mission, just like we're on a mission. We want to bring this good news, this powerful transformation of God into other people's lives. Paul, again, I mean, we've been talking about it for weeks and weeks and weeks, but he's an outstanding example to us of this. What else can we learn? There's so many things. I, hey, don't be like the Sadducees and, and let your political alliances draw you away from the cause of the gospel to prioritize something other than the mission of God. And at the same time, you look at the Pharisees and go, and don't let this hyper-legalist religiosity draw you away from the heart of the gospel and what God wants to do through you. There are great lessons that we can learn in looking at these guys as our examples. Would you stand with me? Are you with me? Are we ready to go out and live the mission? Come on, God is with us. We serve an awesome God, a God who answers prayer. Grab one of these small group things on your way out. Again, I would encourage you, if you're thinking, man, I, I just need to grow, I need to change, I need to take one step. Hey, we got our growth track stuff in here. We got a biblical foundations class we offer regularly. Look at joining that. You wanna learn more about your gifting or um, your strengths, we've got a great growth track course about that. Take a look at those things. Let me pray for you and we'll go on. Lord, thank you that you are with us. Thank you for your powerful spirit that leads us. God, I thank you for every life in this room right now that you know every one of them intricately and intimately. And you have purpose and you have calling and you have comfort and care for every one of them. Lord, I pray for every heart that it would be open to receive from you what you have for them. God, that they would be encouraged and motivated and restored and renewed. That, Lord, you love your children even more than people can love their own children. Sometimes that blows my mind. How could that even be possible? But, Lord, you do love us. So I pray your blessing, the blessing of a father on each one as they go, that they would draw near to you and that you would draw near to them. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you'd like to receive prayer this morning, please come up and visit our prayer team. For anything at all that you want to receive prayer for, come talk to Ryan and whoever else will be up here. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. Have a great week.